0: Andrew and Rufus was passing by on his way in from the country and they forced him to carry the cross they brought Jesus to the place called Golgotha which means the place of the skull then they offered him wine mixed with myrrh but he did not take it and they crucified him dividing up his clothes they cast lots to see what each would get it was the third hour when they crucified him the written notice of the charge against him read the king of the Jews They crucified two robbers with him, one on his right and one on his left. Those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, so you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. In the same way, the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves. He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. Those crucified with him also heaped insults on him. At the sixth hour, darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour. And at the ninth hour, Jesus cried out in a loud voice, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani, which means, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? When some of those standing near heard this, they said, listen, he's calling Elijah. One man ran, filled a sponge with wine vinegar, put it on a stick and offered it to Jesus to drink. Now leave him alone. Let's see if Elijah comes to take him down, he said. With a loud cry, Jesus breathed his last. The curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. And when the centurion, who stood there in front of Jesus, heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, surely this man was the son of God. Some women were watching from a distance. Among them were Mary Magdalene, Mary the mother of James, the younger and of Joseph, and Salome. In Galilee, these women had followed him and cared for his needs. Many other women who had come up with him to Jerusalem were also there.
1: Father in heaven, we do thank you for your word. And uh, we do pray now that you would help us to focus on what you're saying to us, that we might know more of Christ and what he's done for us on the cross. And we pray these things in Jesus' most precious name. Amen. Why did Jesus die on the cross? Uh, You know, there are uh, different views that people have as to uh, the purpose and the significance of Christ's death on the cross. And I'd like to uh, just share with you one of those views. This is uh, what one leader in a major Australian denomination says. And uh, it's taken from uh, from a sermon which she preached on the uh, Gospel of Luke now listen to what she says and I quote she says it is clear from the Gospel and from Acts that Luke is not thinking of salvation and atonement in terms of what we now call penal substitution this view uses the logic of retributive justice and argues that it was Jesus's death on the cross that saved us from our sins and brought us into right relationship with God. A debt had to be paid for human sin and disobedience in order to satisfy God's demands of justice. This is what made Christ's death upon the cross necessary. In his great love for us, Christ is said to have taken the punishment deserved by all humanity upon himself. This rather mechanistic and grim understanding of atonement was not part of early Christian thought and clearly not part of Luke's thought world. Nor does Luke regard Jesus' death as a sacrifice or as an expiation for sin. His focus is more on Jesus' life and on the wholeness of, that is brought to humanity through contact with the suffering Messiah. Jesus' presence is what brings life, peace, forgiveness of sins and right relation to God, end of quote. Okay, so what did you think of that? What did you feel about what she was... Did you get the gist of it, by the way? There's a few complex words like expiation and atonement and so on, but... What she's saying is that the death of Jesus on the cross was not a sacrifice for sin and that the death of Jesus on the cross does not bring us into a right relationship with God and to think this way, she says, is both grim and mechanistic. No, she says that the way that we can be in right relationship with God is not through the death of Jesus but rather through the life of Jesus and through contact with him in his life. How do you feel about that? It does sound a little bit like she's saying that Jesus really didn't need to die, doesn't it? That's what it sounds like to me. But what does the Bible actually say? Well, today we come to this very important uh, issue of the, the death of Jesus on the cross which uh, really is the the heart of Christian faith, as we look at Mark 15, which is the um, uh, key passage on the death of Jesus and the crucifixion. And so I wanted to talk about that, talk about what that meant, talk about what that means to us and talk about how we need to be thinking about the cross of Jesus and responding to it. Uh, the The cross of Jesus, the crucifixion, of course, was a most dreadful way of killing somebody. Even the Romans themselves, who had adapted it from the Persians, said that uh, that, uh, crucifixion was the most horrific form of execution known to man. But it is interesting, isn't it, if you care to open up your Bibles at Mark 15, that uh, as Mark begins to describe for us what happened on that day uh, in verses 21 through to 24 that he actually says very little about the crucifixion itself. Did you notice that? I wonder why. Let's have a look at what Mark describes as to what happened. Um, First of all, normally after a prisoner had been sentenced... Uh, the prisoner would carry the the crossbeam of the crucifix on their backs as they were paraded through the streets to the place of execution. But Mark tells us that somebody else was forced to carry the crossbeam for Jesus, doesn't he? he, And he gives us all the details about this man. His name was Simon, that's a Jewish name. Uh, We're told that he came from... place called Cyrene and Cyrene is in North Africa it's in actually in Libya so he's a long way from home. Uh, Mark tells us the the names of his sons Uh, he's got one son his name's Alexander another son whose name's Rufus and uh, perhaps uh, those two sons might have become Christians they might have been known to the church in Rome which is the church to which Mark has written his gospel but uh, that's a lot of detail, isn't it, about just the man who carried the, the crossbeam. And then Mark says that they went to a place called Golgotha. He says he wants to identify where where it was, what the name of the exact location was, uh, Golgotha. And he translates that from Aramaic into Greek so that his readers can understand what the word Golgotha means. He says it's called, it means the place of the skull, which you've got to think, well, that's an apt name for a place of execution. And then we're told that Jesus Jesus refused an offer of some wine which was mixed with myrrh. And then the soldiers, uh, they divided up his clothes and took them for himself like plunder. That's a lot of detail, isn't it? packed into just a few verses. But what does Mark say about the actual crucifixion? What does Mark say about the long, thick nails that were hammered into the wrists and into the feet of Jesus? What does Mark say about the pain and the blood? What does he say about it? He says absolutely, well, almost nothing. He only says four words, doesn't he? And they crucified him. Four words. See, the Romans crucified countless people. Um, They estimate that at least 30,000 Jews all up were crucified by Romans. And so the people who first read this gospel, they, they kind of didn't need to have all of the blood and the guts and the gory details spilled out for them. They knew what crucifixion involved. But it seems to me that Mark has another agenda here. It seems to me that Mark is painting for us a picture of a death which God intended. This was an intentional death. Think about it. Uh, Jesus had been so badly whipped and bashed that he was physically incapable of carrying the crossbeam to to the place of execution and that's why Simon gets mentioned. But even in his dreadful physical state... He refused to drink the wine that was mixed with myrrh. Uh, myrrh uh, is a is a sedative. It, it has the effect of of uh, slowing down and of deadening the senses, deadening the pain to some extent. But Jesus Jesus preferred to remain completely conscious. Jesus preferred to endure the pain throughout the whole ordeal. That's why he's refused the wine that was mixed with myrrh. Um, Roman soldiers, uh, they often took the clothes of their victims. And you've got to think to yourself, those clothes are going to be blood-soaked. That's going to take a lot of cleaning and bleaching, but they would take the uh, clothes of their victims in order to wash them and to keep them for themselves. But here we see that this is exactly what God had intended. This was exactly what God had planned because uh, in the Old Testament, in Psalm 22, Psalm 22 is a psalm which it's written by David. It's a psalm which speaks of David's experience of being uh, oppressed and surrounded by evil men and certain things that happened to David. But it's a psalm which is prophetic It's a psalm which speaks about Christ. And it's a psalm which uh, tells us that uh, the Christ would be mocked, that the Christ would be pierced by evil men who would divide up his clothes and share them amongst themselves. Psalm 22. See, Mark spares us the gory details because what, what he's doing here is he's painting a picture of a death that's a fulfilment of prophecy, a death which was part of God's plan, a death which was intentional. Because God intended for his death to also be substitutional. God intended for Jesus to be our substitute. And we see that uh, in a sense through the way that Jesus was mocked whilst he was on the cross. First of all, we're told that the Romans mocked him. When a man was was crucified, on his way to the crucifixion, uh, another person would walk in front of him who would be carrying a sign which would declare to everybody the charge for which the person had been convicted. And uh, in Jesus' case... Pilate insisted that it be written in three languages, in Greek, in Latin, in Aramaic, so that everybody from wherever they in the world had come from would be able to read it and see the charge against Jesus. And that sign would then be nailed to the crucifix. What was Jesus' crime? Well, in verse 26, the sign read, the king of the Jews. Now the Romans loved that. Uh, it was, they were taunting the Jews. Uh, it, it was saying to the Jews, uh, This is what we do to your King. He is helpless before us. Ordinary people mocked Jesus as well. Let's read that. Uh, let's take a look at verse 29. In verse 29, we're told that those who passed by hurled insults at him, shaking their heads and saying, So, you who are going to destroy the temple and build it in three days, come down from the cross and save yourself. They thought he was a joke. You know, he said that, uh, that the temple was going to be destroyed and that, and that within three days that he was going to build it up again. But now look at him, bloodied, humiliated, dying. But what would have happened? What would have happened if Jesus had come down from the cross and saved himself? What would have happened to the temple? Well, if Jesus had come down from the cross, friends, the true temple would never have been built in three days. Because what is the true temple? We are the true temple. We who through the death and the resurrection of Jesus are now filled with the presence of God through his Holy Spirit. If Jesus had given into their taunts, the very thing that they accused him of not being able to do to rebuild the temple would never have been done. Thirdly, The religious leaders mocked him as well. Verse 31. In verse 31, In the same way the chief priests and the teachers of the law mocked him among themselves, He saved others, they said, but he can't save himself. Let this Christ, this King of Israel, come down now from the cross that we may see and believe. You see, they thought uh, this was their moment. Uh, They hated Jesus. He had exposed their hypocrisy, he had exposed their false religion, he he had exposed their sinful motivations. And this was the moment that they had been plotting for. And yet, if Jesus had used his great miraculous power and come down from the cross, if Jesus had harnessed all of the resources, if angels had come and lifted him down from the cross, then how many people would be saved? One. But by staying on the cross, by doing the very thing which they believed that uh, he was incapable of coming down from the cross, by staying on the cross, how many people have been saved? Well, you can't count them, can you? countless millions upon millions of people throughout the world across the globe down through the ages have been saved because Jesus refused to come down from the cross and save himself because Jesus died in our place. He was our substitute so his death was an intentional death his death was a substitutional death And thirdly, his death was an atoning death. To atone for sin means to make up for what you've done wrong. So you do something wrong, you do something right, it's made up for. You've atoned. And that's the kind of folk religion that a lot of people have, isn't it? That uh, I'll be okay with God uh, because I'm not a terribly bad person. I can, So long as you live a life that's basically good, it's like if God is up in heaven uh, and he's counting all of your good deeds and he's counting all your bad deeds and on the di- day of judgment when he closes the books, 51% gets you through, you'll be okay. There are some churches who, who teach that you can somehow make up for your sins just got to go and confess your sin and perform certain rituals just got to say a few Hail Marys or nonsense like that and you'll get across the line but that's not what sin is like sin is not just the wrong things that we do sin is an attitude towards God it's an attitude which says I'm going to live my life my way thank you very much I mean Frank Sinatra used to sing about that, didn't he? You know, I've made a few mistakes, I've had a few regrets, but what matters most of all is that whatever's happened, that I did it my way. I won't sing the song for you. You'd be relieved to hear about that. That'll add to my sins. <laughs> but that's that's the nature of sin, isn't it? And there's a sense in which we're all like that. We might have done terrible things in our lives or we might be people who've lived very tame lives. We might be pretty squeaky clean in terms of our lives but the question is, whose way? Have we lived that way because it's our way or because it's God's way? Have we always put God first in our lives? And the answer to that question, of course, is no. And because of that, every single human being Every person deserves the judgment of God. Every person, that is, except for one. The one who always lived perfectly, obediently to his heavenly Father. The one who in this passage did not deserve to die, but the one who was hanging on the cross in our place. In 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 21, The Apostle Paul puts it this way. He says that he who had no sin became sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. So that on the cross a great exchange has taken place. A great exchange has taken place so that um, Jesus... Uh, has borne our sin for us. And this is what we see happening in verse 34 when uh, Jesus cried out uh, in Aramaic his language that he spoke in Eloi Eloi lama sabachthani which means my God my God why have you forsaken me. Because at that moment your sin my sin the sins of all who live in this world who Put their trust in him, were placed on Jesus. And God, the Father who cannot have any dealings with sin, turned his face away. That church leader that I quoted earlier on thinks that the way that we come into a right relationship with God is somehow through the life of Jesus, somehow through connecting to his life, but not through his death. She says that that view is grim and mechanistic. And yet, friends, for three hours, what happened to the sky on that day? In the middle of the day, it turned black. And in biblical terms, blackness is a symbol of the judgment of God. Because at that moment, Jesus, God the Son, actually became sin us. God made him who had no sin to be sin for us so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. It's a great exchange but you have to say this, it wasn't fair was it? It was not fair And I was talking to someone after the nine o'clock service and working this through a bit more clearly. And she said, it's just not right. It's just not fair that that should happen to Jesus. And that's absolutely true. And that's why it's such great news for us. Because finally, the death of Jesus is also an impacting death. It made a great impact on the Roman centurion who was in charge of the operation on that day. Let's read about that in verse 39. In verse 39, uh, it says, And when the centurion who stood there in front of Jesus heard his cry and saw how he died, he said, Surely this man was the Son of God. Now, a Roman centurion, for a Roman centurion, uh, crucifixion, that's all in a day's work. Uh, you've seen one crucifixion, you've seen them all. Um, it's the same scenario. The, the man is nailed up or sometimes tied up to the, to the crucifix. The, his body slumps down, air gets trapped in his lungs and so the victim then has to push upwards uh, with his feet and his legs so as to uh, allow the, the air to escape so that he can breathe out. Imagine doing that with feet that have got a huge nail that's been driven through them. Sometimes it takes days but eventually the victim passes out or asphyxiates, suffocates, has a cardiac arrest and dies. But Jesus chose not to drink the myrrh. Jesus was deliberately conscious right to the very end And so in verse 37, with a loud cry, he breathed his last. Matthew in his gospel says that Jesus gave up his spirit. The Roman governor, remember Pilate? Well, after this happened, uh, see next week, Joseph of Arimathea uh, went to Pilate and he wanted the body of Jesus so he could bury it and Pilate was surprised. He said, What? You mean he's dead already? That's too quick. Man doesn't die that quickly from crucifixion. It's supposed to be drawn out. It's supposed to be more long-lasting than that. And this Roman centurion, he would have seen many men die on a cross. But he was impacted. He saw how Jesus died and he said to himself, No, there's something different here. This man is different. And he called out and he said, Surely this man was the son of God. Now we don't really know what he meant by that or what he understood by that. We do know that his boss in Rome, Tiberius Caesar, uh, thought of himself as being the son of a god. But this experienced centurion realised that there was just something about Jesus. That he did not die simply as a helpless victim. That he even seemed to have a degree of control over his own death. It was seeing how he died that the centurion declared surely this man was the son of God. It's a death which impacted the centurion. It's a death which impacts you and me. All of this took place at Golgotha. Uh, Golgotha is on a hill. It's outside of the city of Jerusalem. But inside the city, there's a temple. And the the temple in Jerusalem symbolised two uh, profound things. First of all, it symbolised the presence of God amongst his people. But secondly, the temple symbolised the distance between God and his people. The separation. Because in the middle of the temple was the Holy of Holies. That uh, room where the Ark of the Covenant was was kept. The the commandments and staff of Aaron and so on. In the Holy of Holies, only one man was ever able to enter into that room. And that was the high priest. And he could only do so on one day of the year. And that is the day of atonement. And he could only do so having first atoned for his own sins. And after going through an elaborate ceremonial cleansing ritual, only one man, only one day could enter into that room. Because friends, there is a separation between us and God. You can't simply just rock up to God and say, Hey God, here I am. You can't simply just roll into the Holy of Holies and say, Hey God. But in verse 38, immediately after Jesus breathed his last, what did God do to that curtain? The curtain that separated the Holy of Holies. The curtain that the high priest would have to enter through. What did God do to that curtain? He ripped that curtain down from top to bottom because it was no longer necessary It was now surplus to requirements. It was no longer ever needed because the atonement for sin, the great final, the everlasting, the fullest possible atonement for sin had just been made as Jesus breathed his last. And so therefore the barrier between God and man had been finally dealt with. The barrier is not the curtain. The barrier is the barrier of our sin. Now, I don't know what sins you've committed in your lives. I don't know how great your sin is. I don't know how small your sin is. And you might say, well, I'm actually a reasonably good person. Someone was just speaking to me about a friend who they're trying to share the gospel with and the person says, I'm okay because I'm a good person. You might think that you're a reasonably good person. You might be at least above average or better than the person sitting next to you. Or you might know that you're well below average. You might know that there are things in your life that you have thought, said and done that you very, very deeply regret. The fact is that none of us loves and obeys God as we should. We all deserve his judgment. We all therefore need his forgiveness. And that's why Jesus went to the cross, so that the penalty could be paid, so that forgiveness could be made available. What do we need to do about it? Well, the reality is that uh, we do need to do something about it. Uh, The reality is that uh, just being religious, just coming to church... Uh, is not enough. What we need to do about it is that each one of us needs to make a personal decision. And It doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter how old you are. It doesn't matter how young you are. It doesn't matter if this is the first time you've walked into the church just off the street or if you've been coming to church all of your life. Um, some friends of mine attended a funeral yesterday of a man who had been attending the same church regularly every week for 93 years. He was born and baptised in the church, lived in the same area, went to the same church, rang the bell for the same church until he died. Doesn't matter how long you've been going to the church, going to a church doesn't get you into right relationship with God. But making a decision to put your trust in Jesus In who he is in what he's done for you and turning your life over to serving him that is what gets us into heaven that is what makes us right with God it's not about us and what we do it's about what he has already done on the cross let's pray father we do thank you for the obedience of Jesus that throughout his life he never sinned, that he lived uh, fully under your rule and authority. We thank you that he was obedient to you, even unto death on a cross. We thank you, Father God, that on the cross that he who had no sin became sin and he did it for us. We thank you that we can now have a relationship with you because the debt has been paid. We pray for each one of us that uh, who Christ is and what he's done for us would be real in our lives. We pray for anyone here today, Lord God, who is just thinking things through or struggling with those issues, that you would bring some clarity, that you would bring conviction. And we pray for all of us that we would never wander away from the cross of Jesus that the cross would be central to who we are to, and to how we live. And we pray these things in Jesus' precious name. Amen.